HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This is Sam Edwards, proud sponsor of Heritage Radio Network, surreyfarms.com. Double beat. Here we go. It is once again Thursday, one o'clock, and you have tuned into the Heritage Radio Network. You are listening to the Farm Report, and I am your host, Aaron Fairbanks. We are coming to you live from the back of Roberta's at 261 Moore Street in beautiful Bushwick, Brooklyn. And today we are on the line with Dan and Margot Brooks. Welcome to the show, guys. Hi, Aaron. Hi, Aaron. Hey, so glad to have you. So, um, Marco, I know we've had you on the show before. You are currently um, one of the herd managers for Consider Bardwell Farm and a sixth-generation farmer. And Dan is your father, who farms right next door at Wayward Goose Farm. And, and, and Dan is a fifth-generation farmer. And what I, I'm excited to kind of have you guys both on the show today because I think you represent um, this really interesting story uh, of transition uh, with regards to dairy farming in New York State. And Dan, I think we're going to start with you. Now, you you grew up uh, on a dairy farm and ran a conventional dairy farm for, I think, 27 years. And maybe you can tell us a little bit about um, the farm you were operating prior to Wayward Goose. Uh, yeah, it was a, a family farm, and we we uh, expanded in the early '90s, I think. And before that, we we uh, ground our own feed, made our own, grew corn, but we used it all to grind our own feed, and we were milking around 50 cows. And then we expanded and built onto the barn and. <clears throat> made it a 92 cow herd and so then we couldn't uh, grow enough corn to grind our own feed anymore and had to buy convent you know regular mixed feed and uh, we grew a lot of corn for corn silage and um, we also had some beef cows and a lot of land a lot of wood woods so you said you were milking at that point about just just over ninety head, and I think the New York State average is right around a hundred. And so, in that in that operation, where was um, where was the milk going? Uh, the milk was going to uh, to uh, Cabot or Agrimark 
They're they're a regional dairy cooperative. So can you tell us a little bit about about what that relationship looks like? I mean, one of the things we've had um, a couple of discussions with with cow dairy farmers over over the past couple of years on the show, and you know, one of the things that's always striking to me is how many different um, tasks there are and things that you need to as a as a business owner need to be on top of and I think you hit on some of those one obviously taking care of and milking the cows but also um, a lot of dairy farmers in New York State work hard to grow their own crops uh, for feed for the cows and then um, but are somewhat divorced from kind of the end product so maybe you can talk a little bit about you know you are in the milking parlor milking the cows and then what happens kind of to the milk at after that point yeah on the on the farm i was on it was uh you know it was all went into one big uh tanker truck and and uh so every every farm's milk is mixed together and it got to me so that it didn't feel like i was uh doing something that was that was, uh, you know, something that I could be proud of, I guess. We we had quality milk awards and things like that, but I knew our milk just got mixed in with everyone else's milk. And, and I, you know, it uh, wasn't as, uh, wasn't as, I wasn't involved in the end product as I am here. It's a lot. It's a lot different here. We're where our milk uh, goes to make the cheese, and we actually help take care of the cheeses in the caves, and so we actually have a really good connection to the end product, and that makes us feel really good. Can you talk? What are some of those? I mean, as far as milk quality. Um, you know, what are we talking about? I'm assuming you know when you're selling into Agrimart that. You know, they're not going to pull up and take ju- just anything. I mean, there are kind of metrics that you needed to hit. Can you talk about what some of those are? Uh, yeah, there's a legal limit for uh, somatic cell count and and for uh, bacteria and and then you know if you're over the legal limit, they won't even take your milk. So so everybody has to be under that. And then Agrimark also was paying us paying a premium for milk that was under a certain uh, somatic cell and bacteria count. And then on top of that, you get premiums for for uh, protein and butter fat, I believe. Okay, what is it? Can you tell me? I don't just because I'm not familiar. A somatic cell is what is that referring to? What's that a measurement of? Um, it's it's supposed to be a measurement of like if well I don't know exactly how to how to uh, state it it's it's um, it could show that a cow has some sort of an, an infection if there's a cow that had a really high somatic cell count okay so so it's kind of um, a, a threshold They're, they set a threshold of kind of an acceptable of I mean because milk is you know a live kind of raw product it is going to have a level of bacterial content which you know which is something you want kind of the, but there's good bacteria right. and bad bacteria so basically those tests are measuring kind of what is an acceptable level um, for that milk in addition to the protein and the butter fat content because um, the Agrimart now they are taking that milk to produce cheese but they also sell fluid milk is that right 
I believe they do, yes. And as far as I know. One of, one of the, I kind of think the other topics that we've touched on here is in this model where you're selling into a cooperative, one of the things I think that's really great about that is you have a consistent outlet for your product. I mean, cows are, you know, once you, they're milking, it's not like you can turn a lever and shut them off. So you need kind of something to do with that milk every day and having this relationship with the co-op allows you kind of a steady outlet for your product. But the kind of corollary of that is 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 with the pricing that you get. And can you talk a little bit about how you got paid or how that price was was set um, for for the milk that you were producing on on your previous farm? Uh, yeah, that's it. I could try, but it's complicated. I know there's a whole formula based on you know how far you are from Boston and the uh, um, somehow. Somehow they set the price every every month for for the milk, and you know I, n- I never exactly understood it. But you were essentially a price taker, I guess is my point. In that they said this is what you're getting paid, and your ability to kind of uh, bargain or barter, or 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 I think essentially really recognize a premium for a premium product was fairly limited. Yeah, that's true. And there was a lot of fluctuation, you know, there, there would be uh, times when the milk prices were really good, and and it seems like when those times happen, then a lot of people expand, and then before long, the price uh, goes back down really low, and, and the highs were getting higher, and the lows were getting lower, it seemed like. So from a management perspective, that sounds really stressful because essentially all of that is out of your control, more or less. Yeah, it is. It is stressful. It's, um, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to know what's, what's, what to expect, you know, and you can keep track of the markets, but, and there are, uh, there are some ways you can limit your risk if, if you, uh, if you know how to do that, but <clears throat> that's complicated also. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm getting that impression. So, Margo, you grew up on this dairy farm, and you, I mean, you left to go to college, and then were you, I know now that you're working at Consider Bardwell, and we've talked a little bit through kind of your path to get there on previous shows, but maybe you can recap kind of quickly, um, you know, how you ended up at Consider Bardwell and, and um, maybe why you chose not to go back to the family farm, or tell us a little bit about that decision process. Sure. Um, yeah, so I, I went away to college. I went to St. Lawrence University, which is way up in northern New York, and um, I was a biology major, and I was really interested in sort of conservation biology, and um, as I sort of um, went through my four years and, and towards the end of my college tenure, I, I started to realize that um, I, was, I was still really interested in, in my family's farm, and every time I'd go home on breaks, I was just um, uh, blown away by how big it was and sort of the diversity that was there, and uh, I, I just was pulled back more and more to the farm and farming, and I realized that I could really... Um, make an impact if I, if I took my conservation biology ideas and, and all the things I had learned and went back and applied that to a farming setting. And 
Um, and I was interested in my farm in particular because it did have this diversity at one point. You know, my my great-grandfather and before that, they, they had a lot of diversity on the farm. There were apple orchards and bees and sheep and cows, and then as time went on, those things sort of fell by the wayside and things just got focused um, on sort of this monoculture idea of, of the dairy and because that was what was the most profitable and um, it was what was being pushed by, I don't know, by the government, I guess, or, you know, it's just the trend. Um, but so I, I, I did want to go back to my family's farm and I thought the way to do that would be to to learn how to make a value-added product first. So I, I, I found this job at Consider Bardwell Farm. It was just perfect timing and um, a well-timed email, and I, I got a job as a cheesemaker here in 2008, right out of college, and I spent a year and a half making cheese. Um, and then conversations started to come up with, you know, I went back home and and started the, the conversation about maybe coming going back and, and trying to build a little creamery and maybe expand into some goat goats and uh, it just the the farm wasn't just my my father running it it was him and his brother and it, they were the two brothers that were owners in the whole thing and it just was clear at that point that it wasn't going to work out there were conflicting ideas about the direction that the farm should take and um, and so at that point I realized I wasn't going to be able to to live out my dream of going back to the family farm and, and make, you know, doing my own thing there. Um, and at that point, my dad sort of realized that that was um, the end for him there, too, because if his kids couldn't come back and, and have a part in it, then he didn't really want to be there either. So, so then we started looking at other options, and, and in 2011, last January, my parents... Um, Bought the farm right next door to consider Bardwell and and moved in and and so that's where we are now. Wow! And I there's like a great um, piece on 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 how the farm kind of got its name, and I would encourage uh, listeners to the Farm Report to to check check that out on the the previous episode that you were on, Marco. But Dan, can you talk a little bit about you know after kind of growing up and spending your entire life on this one piece of property in this farm, what it was like essentially to be kind of out on the market looking to purchase a new piece of land? I mean, I think one of the things that comes up a lot as farms are looking to transition is is kind of just the story here is how do you include the next generation and continue to support the the generation that currently is actively working the farm and you know, you made that decision to to kind of look for a new piece of property. So can you talk a little bit about what the market looked like and what were some of the factors that went into your decision-making? Because Wayward Goose now, you guys are milking, I think, 20 cows. Is that right? 20 jerseys. So it was a big shift from the environment that, that you had been working in previous to that. Yeah, it was, a, it was a very stressful time looking for farms. It was... Uh, you know, a lot of farms we looked at would have something we liked, but the you know a lot of the farmhouses were really not in good shape, and we had uh, <clears throat> my wife Lori and I had spent a lot of time already fixing up the house that my grandparents owned, which was really uh, run down, and we really didn't want to have to do that again, and so we were 
we were looking for a place that where we wouldn't have to spend a lot of uh, time and energy and money fixing up a house. So that was one of the things that we agreed on. And and I also spent a lot of time on the on the uh, soil website because you can see any piece of land and see what the soils are like so i was trying to find a place you know i said if we were going to buy a place we should buy a place that at least had good soil and and uh the the farm that we ended up with doesn't have great crop soil but it's really nice pasture land and so that worked out for us um, and so is the soil site, I mean, is that, I know for a land to be in like an agricultural uh, assessment for tax purposes, the soil has to be categorized and there's different levels of quality. Um, is, is that the site you're talking about or what, I mean, where, what, what were you looking at as far as, like, how did you know that that existed or, or if someone else was kind of in your shoes now, what would they go to, 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 to look at some of that similar information? Um, yeah, I think it's the USDA Soil Service um, site. I think that's what it's called. Um, and you can you can actually draw lines around the piece of property that you're looking at on there. It's very interactive once you figure out how to use it. And uh, you can uh, section off one field or, or one uh, piece of property, and, and it'll tell you exactly what soil types they are and what will grow good there and it's uh really helpful if you're looking for land sure and that's linked to lands that are available for sale or that's just kind of a categorization of all new york state land no it's not just land that's for sale i don't think it's just new york state land either i think it's uh it's probably i think national, it's a national thing Interesting. as far as i know Wow. So we are going to take uh, a short break. And when we get back, I want to tuck into a little bit more about what your production looks like now that you're on Wayward Goose Farm. So hold tight. We will be back in one moment. The following program was sponsored by S. Wallace Edwards and Sons. Summertime is not the only time when barbecue is welcome. At S. Wallace Edwards and Sons, Sam Edwards has been working his magic on ribs, briskets, pit-cooked pulled pork, and much, much more. Add a few of their sides and the party is complete. Entertaining has never been so easy. To order, go to virginiatraditions.com. Okay, we're back. You are tuned into the Farm Report, and we are talking dairy with Dan and Margot Brooks. Um, both are raising animals for milk production for Consider Bardwell Farms. Um, so at Consider Bardwell, they make a number of cheeses, and no small feat. The, cheese, the cheeses um, have been really well received. I know you know the American Cheese Society has awarded you guys with a couple, I think, best in shows and first places, and so... The, the cheese that you're producing there is obviously at a very high level, and you do 
goat's milk cheese and cow's milk cheese. So the two farms are working in, in partnership for milk production. And, and, and then, Dan, you said you were also doing some work in the cheese caves? Yeah, my wife, Lori, and I both work in the, in the cheese caves. I take care of the Rupert that they make, um, have to flip, flip each wheel once a week, and the younger cheeses have to be brined each week. And they're uh, 40 to 50, 60-pound wheels. Wow. And they just built another uh, cave to store those in, and they seem to be expanding, and the cheese is doing really well. That's great. So as a producer, um, you know, when you're kind of going from this larger model where, where your milk is essentially being picked up every day and, and you have no real relationship with the end product, can you talk about how, how you're on, on the farming side of things, like how having this relationship with the end product has changed the way you, you work with the animals or, or how those... Um, I guess I guess that's the end of my question, honestly. <laughs> yeah, the, um, it's we we have a lot of visitors here because we are right next to Consider Bardwell, so you know we try hard to <clears throat> keep things looking really nice and uh, have the cows so they're visible to the to people that stop in. We also sell raw milk here from our farm, and we get a lot of you know a lot of visitors, so it does. Uh, and we're also animal welfare approved, so that's that's a big part of uh, you know it adds helps add value to our to our products and eventually may add value to the cheeses. And as far as you know, working with a herd of twenty versus a herd of of ninety, um, how how has that been a, a difference for you? I mean, does it mean that you ha- only have to work like a a quarter as hard. Um, well, there is there is a lot less, but it's still you know you still have to be there both ends of the day to milk the cows. That's no no different, and it seems like it still takes me two hours to milk, even though I'm only milking twenty cows. By the time I feed calves and do every you know everything else, and and our milk room where we sell milk is also connected right to our milking parlor so we always make sure that's uh you know nice and clean for visitors when they stop in and and um the a big difference is that with 20 cows if they're if they're going down a laneway they make a whole lot less mud than 90 cows do and that's that's nice and it's easier to move them around and it's uh, really enjoyable working with the Jersey herd that we have. They're really friendly and easy to work with. And and now that they've been here a year and are used to our uh, situation, they're really, really milking well this spring. Can you so can you talk about that? I mean, you're working with Jerseys now, but were what what breed were you working with previously? Um, we had mostly Holsteins, but we had we also had some crossbreeds. We had a few linebacks and some uh, milking shorthorn crosses, and I was trying to cross some of the frailer-type Holstein cows to uh, brown Swiss to make them a little stronger. And and we were we were rotational grazing the cows there, too, so, you know, that's not a lot different. I was used to that, and had a 
pretty good feel for when to move cows on the grass and things like that. Well, that's one of the things I've heard about, like heard in, I guess, in defense of larger scale dairies who don't do, um, you know, who aren't, aren't doing any grazing, especially for the animals that they're milking because the, uh, the milk picks up flavors from what the, what the cows are eating. And, and so you have this kind of variety of flavors that was essentially seen, can, could be seen, I think, as a negative in the fluid mark, fluid milk market, but that I guess would be a positive in the in the in the cheese world as, as you're looking to kind of see some seasonality between the milk i mean it is a, a a product that shifts throughout the year i mean is is that something that you you have noticed and i guess it has you guys have been milking for a year now so have have you picked up any trends throughout the year or any different flavor pro- profiles from the milk that you kind of can see reflected in the cheese um, I, I don't see a, a lot of difference. We did just put a sign up on our milk fridge for our raw milk that just to warn the customers that they might notice a little bit of a grassy taste while the cows are out on grass the first thing in the spring and the pastures are really lush. Um, but we haven't really noticed it yet. I've just put a sign up to let people know that it could happen and um, actually, the head cheesemaker Peter Dixon was talking about some of the some of the uh, cheese places actually keep track of what pastures their cows or sheep or whatever they're making cheese from graze on, and they have people that want only cheese that came from a certain pasture. Oh wow! <laughs> You're like really dialed into what you like. I mean, what a luxury. Um, Marco, maybe because you have, you have been working, you know, in your lifetime, you've worked extensively with cows, but also with goats. Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, the differences between the two animals and, and, um, I don't know if there are different decisions or like how the things that impact the milk differently between. Sure. Sure. Um, well, the biggest differences I see are, um, you know the the goats are a little smarter, and well, my dad might um, bristle at this, but I think they're smarter and they have more personality. I've always been a goat person. Um, they're so that also makes them a little bit harder to can, to contain within fencing. They're pretty wily; they get out easily, um, so that creates a management issue. Um, my dad can put up one single strand of electric fence and keep cows in, and we have to have you know, a netting of fence um, to keep the goats in. Um, and, you know, different things. The poop factor is a big one. They they have a much cleaner poop, a much um, more manageable poop. It's just these little milk duds, basically. They really um, do look like milk duds. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so when a, when a goat poops in the milking parlor, I can just, you know, I could pick it up in my hand and not even get my hand that dirty um, and just, toss it in the garbage and um so that's a big difference and it's it actually you know it's a big part of a farmer's day is just managing the waste that comes out of these animals so um so they're much more manageable in that way and things stay a little cleaner um and and one of the bigger things too is that they are seasonal breeders so so they breed in the fall all of them they all come into heat at the same time and then they kid in the spring, and when they have their kids, they have usually two to three per animal, as opposed to the cows, which will have one calf, sometimes two. 
um, but that's not very often. And so that makes a big management difference for us. Um, we, you know, my dad's breeding his cows year-round and calving year-round. He's not having this big influx of calves. And, um, and we have, right now we're raising 150 um, kids, right? Uh, so, so that's a big management issue for us. And, you know, just the, the, the milk factor, They're, they make a lot less milk per animal. It, takes, it would take about seven of our goats to make the amount of milk that one of my dad's cows can make. So um, you have to have more, but uh, they're smaller, and I can, you know, manage them a little easier. Easier than that. Physically, yeah. Sure. And now I know to be animal welfare approved that one of the requirements is that you have to raise all your young stock on the farm. And Margo, I know that you and Alex are raising uh, the the goats and the animals that you're not going to be used as replacements for your milking herd for the No Goat mm-hmm. Left Behind project to sell into restaurants down here in the city. But Dan, when you have um, you know a, a male calf is born on the farm. Um, how do, you, how do you manage that end of things, and, and what, what's the outlet for, for those animals? Uh, well, we're currently raising seven calves for veal, um, feeding them real milk, and um, I've started breeding. Unless I'm, unless I'm positive I want to raise a calf out of a cow, I'll, I breed some of the cows to Angus so that they'll grow better veal calves. And I don't foresee that I'm going to need a huge amount of replacement dairy cows for our farm because they, I think they're going to last really well. They're, our uh, setup seems to work really well. They, they uh, stood the winter good, and um, so I'm, you know, trying to manage things by breeding to a beef breed so we can grow some better veal and. The Jersey veal actually is very good, and they they grow well too. But the ones that are crossed with Angus really fill out quickly and make nice veal. So that's what we're doing at the at the present time. So I know I mean, veal. I think in some circles is a real kind of, of dirty word, and I think there's been a lot of coverage in the media of some some pretty brutal living conditions for. Veal. I mean, with particular regards to you know confinement. Um, so, how I, I'm assuming you know through the animal welfare approved process that, but that those uh, you know is not something as a consumer that we would need to be concerned with. Can you like how what qualifies veal as veal? Is it is it just an age thing or I mean what is what does that really mean? Like what's the the demarker for for that name? Uh, well, to me, it generally means that they're mostly fed milk. I think the commercial veal farms, you know, they keep them in a really confined space and and give them a lot of milk, and but it's usually milk replacer. And our uh, veal calves are raised in group pens, which is something Animal Welfare Approved uh, requires. They don't want them raised in uh, pens by themselves so ours are in a group and they have a they have a group uh, feeder that they eat out of and we also feed them some hay and and some grain so it's not probably like traditional veal it's more like a rose veal or something like that because uh, with uh, you know regular veal 
commercial veal. They're fed only milk, so they don't really develop a rumen to to uh, digest hay and grain and things like that. But our our calves are fed some hand grain to develop their rumen, and and the meat doesn't come out white like it does with a with a commercial veal. It's more of a you know a rosy color, and but it has really nice flavor. Nice. So. Margo, you uh, you know you you grew up, you left home, moved on to another farm, and then somehow are are still living you know within walking distance of your parents in West Pollitt, Vermont, this tiny little town. What what do you guys do up there? You know, for fun, like what's happening? Uh, is there any activities or events during the week, or, or how do you fill your time when you're not you know busy taking care of the animals? <laughs> Uh, well, there's not a lot of that time for us. <laughs> um, people always ask us that, and, and it just seems like it's just never an issue because we just never have time to, to kill. But, um, yeah, there are, there are quite a few things going on, and, and there are a lot of other farmers around here, so, so we're able to um, have a pretty good social life with um, a lot of the other um, young farmers that are doing some cool things around here. And there are a lot of farmers markets um, and places where you can go and, and get some interaction with the community. Um, in fact, there's one right in West Pollitt. Um, it's on Friday night. It's a great little market. And um, there are a few veggie vendors and um, a bunch of different um, prepared food vendors. So it's a great place to go since there aren't a lot of restaurants around here. Um, it's a great place to go and get some good food on Friday night and um, just just see everyone and, and socialize a bit. Um, yeah, I have to give a shout out to your mom, actually. I would, you know, took a trip up through Vermont a few weeks ago and was able to stop and catch that market and snag a piece of her pineapple pie, which was delicious. Um, so if anyone finds himself, you know, within an hour's drive of West Pollard, I'd say it's worth the trip. It's a real kind of slice of life. Um, but if you want to get some cheese or some of the veal or other products, I mean, where can people find you guys? Um, well, the, if you're in the vicinity of West Pollitt, you can always come right on to, down to the farm and um, you can buy the cheese. We have our um, free-range eggs for sale there. And um, right next door is Wayward Goose Farm where they sell their raw milk and um, homemade pies on, on, fry, on the weekend. Usually there's some pies for sale down in the milk cooler. Um, and you can also get the veal right here on the farm. Um, but other than that, in, in New York, we're um, considered Bardwell Farm is in many, many markets. I don't even know uh, the, the ones. They're on the website. You can find them on considerbardwellfarm.com, the different um, markets that we're a part of. And um, we, we also are selling the Wayward Goose Farm animal welfare-approved veal at those markets, too. So you can, you can try that if you want. Oh, and I do. Uh, Dan and Margo, thank you so much for taking some time out of your day to join us on the Farm Report today. It was great to get a chance to to hear a little bit more. Um, I feel like there's so many great stories up at Consider Bardwell, so I'm sure we'll have you guys on again soon to talk about goats or, or dairy or conservation, any of the myriad of issues that you're tucking into. So thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Aaron. Thanks, Aaron. Awesome. Tune in next week at 1 o'clock for another episode of The Farm Report. Coming to you live from Bushwick, Brooklyn.
Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening.